This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Adi and Shane are out and about, but they will be back. Delighted to welcome to the show John Sin. You may know John from his recent win. He just won the World Series Poker main event just last month. He beat out 7,873 other players to take the grand prize. Payoff there, $8.8 million. It's been a good summer, John. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, good. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Where are you calling in from this morning? Uh, I'm currently in Los Angeles. Well, I, we know it's early out there. Um, <laughs> we really, or maybe it's late, or maybe it's late. I appreciate your you're taking the time to be with us. We want to talk yeah, to def- you. Saw your performance. Impressed as always with the performance. And uh, Eric is is hardcore on the poker side. He's going to ask you some poker questions. Let me ask you some more general questions. What has your life been like for the last month? It has to be a transforming thing to to win that. I mean, you play a lot of tournaments. You've won a lot of money. You've won some tournaments, but but that one. What's it been like over the last month? I, I play a lot of tournaments compared to, you know, your everyday uh, recreational player, I guess. Mm-hmm. But compared to your professional player, I, I hardly play. Any, I would say. Um, the past month or so, uh, the the win came about two weeks ago, which means that we probably started playing about a month ago. Yep. Uh, it's you know it, it's been unreal. It, really, it went from you know a completely normal uh, or what I would consider a relatively normal uh, life uh, as a poker professional. Um, and at some state stage going into making the money in the main event, you know, which is always nice, uh, to making another deep run in the main event mm-hmm. uh, compared to two years ago, which is kind of crazy uh, from a statistic standpoint. Right. And then actually winning the main event, uh, which is something that, you know, you never really plan for. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never... It's something you always dream of, but you never really think it's going to happen to you. Kind of like winning the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, John, let me so, take that. Let me take that seriously. This is something as an outsider, I was wonder. I mean, I'm always interested in performance persistence. You know, how much is skill? How much is luck? And you said, from a statistical perspective, it just seems so unlikely that you'll win this thing or that you'll end up at the final table. How do you guys, the you know, the top poker players in the world, how do you think about skill versus luck in the way these tournaments play out? I mean, variance is a huge, huge factor. Um, and, you know, in both of my runs, I got extremely lucky. You have to get lucky to run deep in, in these things. Or as some people would say, you have to not get unlucky. Mm. Um, but really, in a field this big, you really have to get lucky at some point. So, John, this is Eric um, Brado. Just to be specific, how many hands during this last run you know, after the fact, you obviously don't know it at the time. Were you basically a heads up or a coin flip and it went your way? Was it five hands? So we should be thinking one half to the fifth, like one out of 32. Was it 10 hands? How many times were you even all in where you could have been out of the tournament had the coin flip not gone your way? 
Uh, I think the easier number for me to remember, and it's probably not, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to forget a hand or two here or there. Um, I would, I would guess maybe four or five hands where I was effectively all in. Uh, one hand that I remember that people consider a flip, but I'm definitely a, a dog uh, where I got in ace-jack first, pocket nines. Uh, I'm a slight dog there. <clears throat> and then there were – I think I was actually somehow fortunate enough. I, I ran really good uh, as far as, you know, as far as, like, you know, outlier statistics go. Seven out of the ten days in this tournament, I've been playing poker for – 16, 17 years, they were like by far the, the best run of cards I've ever had. Oh my. Um, like, like maybe like, you know, so seven out of the 10 days were probably like, you know, could have been my top five or six days of running good. Oh my. So because of that, I was fortunate enough to not have to be in too many all in situations. And when okay. I was in all in situations, uh, I was, you know, in, in pretty decent shape. Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, maybe two or three more flips where I was barely ahead, and then maybe a couple more times where I was all in but had a significant advantage mm-hmm. over the other player. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about the role of Eric Bradlow again? Can you talk about the role of risk aversion, which is at some point, like let's imagine you're like let's take for example the person you played head up against uh, in the final table. Um, he tried to bluff you. I mean, you won the last hand. Fortunately, you had a really good hand. Um, but he basically went all in on a bluff. And um, could you talk? Now, he'll go down as someone in some sense. Obviously, he did extraordinarily well financially. But think of the risk that he took by trying to do that. Do you, As the tournament goes on, do you find yourself becoming more risk-taking or less risk-taking? You know, I, I think it kind of depends on your situation. Um, in in general, the, the longer a tournament goes, you're going to be taking more risks uh, just because that your competition is going to be getting harder. Uh, they're going to be playing uh, a, a lot better uh, poker, which means you're going to be forced into spots where you have to gamble a little bit more. Whereas early on, um, you can sacrifice some EV in order to make it deeper into the tournament mm. uh, and you still have you know a lot of a lot of good spots where you can pick up you know low variance uh, chips mm. could you talk also a little bit about you know we as you know as a rec- I'm purely a recreational player um, sure. I but I'm a mathematician so I can't help but compute pot odds at any time. So just for our listeners out there, let's say there's $1,000 in the pot and somebody else puts in $300. So now there's 1300 in the pot. If I'm betting 300 now to win 1300 so I'm getting essentially 4.5 to 1 odds, if my cards are, be- are no worse than 4.5 to 1 by an expected value play, I should call. Could you tell us how, when you're playing in a tournament like this, are you computing hot odds are you thinking about the return you're getting on every dollar like you know if you were building if you were working for a major company and investing dollars they'd ask you john what's the roi on your investment are you doing pot odds calculations and can you do that for 10 hours in a row (laughs) um i can do pretty rough pot odd calculations uh you know the 
the great thing about the main event is the structure is so good, which means you have a lot of big wines to play around with. Uh, so for a lot of the tournament, it's like you're playing cash games and, you know, regular pot odds are, are uh, very accurate. Um, but then uh, something happens when you go deep in a tournament where you're all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're still calculating pot odds, but the, the chips you win might not equal the chips you lose, if that makes sense. Um, so like, let's say you have 500 in chips and there's 500 in the middle, uh, you losing that 500 is worth a lot more than the 500 you would win. Right. Uh, just because, you know, the way that the prize pool is structured, uh, the next hand, there might be a $10,000 or $20,000 pay jump, and all of a sudden, uh, the, the actual pot odd calculations aren't, uh, aren't that reliable. Interesting. So people always talk about, yeah, people always talk about playing to win, was there a point at which your mindset changed from, you know, first, obviously, as you said, you want to cash because that's a big deal. You go from, you know, I'm out $10,000 to I think the first cash point is 15000 right? So you're maybe up 5000 When does your mindset change to, you know, I'm going to risk maybe even a million dollars, but to win? When does your mindset change from expected value play to maximizing the probability of winning? Let me let me and can we compare it to sports a little bit? I mean, golfers really, really don't care about coming in second in majors. I mean, it's it's nice to have a few of those on your resume, but what they want is they want the major titles. Is it similar in 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 poker where there's just such a bump there at the end if you actually win the thing? Um, <clears throat> yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, when your head's up, you're obviously playing to win. Uh, a lot of your strategy of whether playing to win or playing to ladder depends on the pay jump, like you said. So when you go from no cash to a min cash, that's going to be one of your biggest pay jumps. That's going to be a fifteen thousand. You get fifteen thousand dollars if you <clears throat> if you survive that one hand mm-hmm. uh, where you main cash. But then the the next pay jump I think is like maybe a couple thousand at most. Um, maybe even just a thousand. Yeah, so it's less. It's point, it's maybe to low sixteen. It's less. It's a, it's right. not. Yeah, it's a very small amount. Right. Yeah. So compared to the fifteen thousand jump earlier, that one thousand is you know insignificant. Uh, that would be one of the stages of the tournament where you're playing to win. Um, and then you know your strategy of risk aversion or, or laddering up that happens more when you uh when you run into the the bigger pay jumps which don't really happen until towards the end of the tournament when there's a few players left mm-hmm. um but it also just you know when the when the payouts are every every nine players or every 27 players uh it just kind of also matters if you just hit that pay jump or not mm-hmm. so Let's say you just went from cashing thirty thousand to forty thousand, and you know the next pay jump is fifty thousand, but it's not going to happen until another twenty players are knocked out. At that point, you can gamble a little more and, and play to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to John Sin. John is the 2018 World Series of Poker main event champion. Just two weeks ago, he walked away with the eight point eight million dollar pot. John, one of the interesting things about your your tournament was the final table ended with ten hours of heads up play between you and Tony Miles. That really jumps out to me as I look at the summary of the tournament. What's it like to play heads up against anybody for 10 hours? I would think you would, 
at what point do you stop learning about them? I mean, do you, do you know everything you need to know <laughs> after 45 minutes or like 10 hours in? Are you still kind of analyzing the guy's play? Just can you talk with us about how that 10 hours went? Sure. Um, I don't think I've ever played. I, I'm not sure if I've played 10 hours of heads up, period. <laughs> right. So You mean total uh, in your life? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it, it's probably not a, a correct statement, but yeah. that's what it seems. I just don't yeah. have a lot of heads up experience. Okay. Um, that 10 hours, it, I, it was actually pretty interesting. There's so many different dynamics at play. Um, and, and because, you know, everything's on a 30-minute delay, we get to find out all the information in, in half an hour later. And then, you know, at that point, we know what they did. They know what we did. But then we also now know that they know what, that we know, you know, and, <laughs> right. and et cetera. Um, and then there were, a, you know, a couple interesting things. It, it, we played so long because people at the final table, people, they just kept getting cooler um, and, they got knocked out surprisingly fast mm-hmm. and that it just set up Tony and I for such a deep match. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember like one of the things that happened maybe halfway into the heads up match was uh, we started, um, the, the blinds got bigger. And so our, our betting was getting bigger and gen- normally in a tournament uh, you get uh, higher denomination chips. So that, you know, uh, you don't have to, like, all, all your betting stays consistent. You know, when you're betting, like, 10 big blinds, you just throw in a couple chips. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we stopped getting higher denomination chips, all of a sudden you have to bet differently, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like, because we had all this information, we, I mean, I probably adjusted my strategy three or four times. And so, like, if when you're talking about a 10-hour time span of playing uh but but it's also you know some of that is break some of that is commercial breaks uh, sure Junkin, give us an example of, of an, a strategy adjustment you said you changed your strategy because you're playing the same guy for 10 hours three or four times what's an example of a change in strategy uh an example of a change in strategy uh i give tony a ton of credit uh whether it's him or his team uh he came out and played way more aggressive uh than i expected him to hmm. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I had to do was every time I would open the button, it seemed like he was just three betting me to a very large sizing and I wasn't ready for that. And I didn't know, you know, if he just had a good run of cards or if he had changed his strategy or whatnot. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I started doing was limping the button, uh, to control, to, to control the pot and and make sure that I got to play all my hands in position against them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned his team. Talk, can you talk about the role of a team in, in poker? Sure. Um, this is, it's interesting, uh, this level of poker, because you will never play th- like this in, in any other format. Uh, and what I'm referring to is the fact that you do get to see uh, all the hands and the results 30 right. minutes later. Right. And because of that, we both had players uh or we both had friends on our rails that were, you know, watching everything and analyzing everything and getting information back to us. Uh huh. So your team is a is a informal collection of folks who are who are tracking these things and, they're, and, they're, and you're supposed to learn. Basically, you it's delayed, but you do have a chance to learn in a level of detail you just don't when the when the tournament's not televised like this. 
<clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was, you know, I think I benefited a lot from, you know, the ability to, you know, find out what all the hands are. But there was definitely a part of me that kind of wished that they would just, like, put us in a bubble and right. we, we could just play poker, you know? Yeah, uh, I didn't know that. Y'all, I thought I thought it was more delayed than that. I would, it's it's no, kind it's of unfathomable to me that you, you have the chance to do that. So can you give us an example of something that you learned from your team about the other player because, you know, 30 minutes later you could find out why something went down or what exactly was going on? Yeah. I can't believe uh, you have I mean, to keep track of that. Of all the things you're already keeping track of and now you're going back and retroactively updating your beliefs, that's amazing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah, there, there's a lot of information, you know, more than enough information that you cannot process all of it. Right. So part of the skill is just being able to know what information you want, what information is noise, what information is significant. Um, and so, like, you know, I I talked about how early on he was three-betting me quite a bit. And, I, you know, I couldn't figure out, you know, is he just getting a really good run of hands or, you know, was he coach to change his strategy. Right. Um, and so, you know, after four or three bets by him, I had a mental note. I, you know, I, I went up to my reel and I said, I need to know what hands he's three betting me with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I saw, you know, a few good hands like ace queen and ace jack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a few um, speculative hands, like maybe a three, four or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was really valuable information to me. Could you talk a little bit about, um, in some sense, can you be a great poker player today for the long run and not have what I would call a mathematical orientation? Can someone just, you know, can it be just someone's great on reading people or just, or do, do you have to have kind of mathematical skills? I'm sure there are many of our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball that are thinking, you know, you, as you said, you didn't have a lot of tournament experience. Um, maybe I can become the next Johnson. Does a mathematical background help? Cause you just talked about expected value. You've talked about variance. You've talked about outliers. You've talked about pot odds. So clearly you have a mathematical orientation in your background. How valuable is that? Having a mathematical orientation is definitely valuable. Um, but the reality is, you know, some of this jargon that I'm using, expected value and pot odds, a lot of these things are just intuitive concepts that have a, a name that, you know, a, a common nomenclature people are using, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, the, it, like you can figure out, you know, what your odds are without knowing what the term expected value is and, and know, like, you know, maybe I should be calling him, maybe I shouldn't be calling there. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely important. I definitely have a few friends that, you know, that, that is just clearly not their strength. Uh, I think if you're playing a lot of live poker, it's less important as if you're playing online poker. Um, but, you know, uh, I think the concept of, like, implied odds is – much more important than the concept of uh, pot odds, because like you could, you could be wrong in pot odds. You could like guesstimate and be wrong and not be making that big of a mistake. So talk to us about implied odds. Sure, implied odds is you know you might not be getting direct odds to be hitting a flush, uh, but you just know your opponent well enough that you know if you hit your flush that you're just going to get a lot of his chips. Um, so it's kind of just being able to guess as to, you know, 
to guess your expected value because of how well you know your opponent. So this is the other thing people, I think people think about being good at poker, really they're two big attributes. I'm sure this is an oversimplification, but I think a lot of people think about poker this way. One is kind of the mathematical side of things, and the other is the psychology side of things. And when we talk to poker players, they, they talk about managing their own psychology, of course, but for the moment, let's talk about the psychology of understanding the other by reading the other player, looking for tells, that kind of thing. And you had a chance, of course, to play 10 hours straight up with one guy. Can you talk about that side of things? You say, know the other player. How, how, how did your understanding of Tony change over those 10 hours? And in general, how important a part of the game is that for you? Um, I grew up, or not grew up, I learned the game as a live player. So picking up on tells and stuff like that is something that's definitely uh, been trained into me. Um, whereas, you know, I have some really smart friends that are really good at poker and, you know, they just think tells is like a myth. Is that right? Um, and so, and, you know, the, the tells aren't prevalent like they were when I first started playing. And now you have to, you know, be careful. Like, you know, is that really a tell? And when you're playing at this level, um, you know, people are fairly aware of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to figure out, okay, is this a tell or is it something that, you know, he's trying to get me off of like I remember two years ago uh, when I went uh, when I got 11th in the main. Uh, Cliff Josephy, you know, gave me gave off a false tell, <laughs> which made me want to bluff off a lot of my chips to him, and I did. And you know, so that's like wow. those are the traps you have to kind of be careful of, right? Um, but even at this point, you know, when I'm thinking about, you know, every, everything's kind of mixed though uh, the psychology and the mathematics. Mathematics of poker. Uh, so, like, maybe I'll spot a tell and I'll be like, oh, I'm not sure that's a tell, but I still think it's like 70% reliable. So, uh, this I should probably call because, you know, I, I like this tell, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about kind of getting over the psychology of losses? I have a close friend that actually did not play in the main event, but played in one of the other World Series of Poker events, made it to the final table was up actually, I don't, you probably, John, will remember the tournament. It was the one that Phil Helmuth won, his 15th bracelet. My friend was at the final table with Phil Helmuth, had him beaten ace-queen to ace-nine, and got knocked out on a nine on the river. How do you get over the psychology (laughs) of something like that? I understand that's why they call it gambling. But, like, (laughs) I've I've told him many times, I would be, forget that that hand was actually worth $80,000 and he would have been the chip leader and maybe that hand might have been worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. How do you get over the psychology of a cooler? How do you do it? You know, it's definitely not easy. Um, But I I think, you know, there's a couple different things. I remember one time I was playing in a tournament and um, this guy who I became friends with, was a very very good poker player and i just saw him take a brutal beat and and not to say that you know i haven't taken brutal beats or whatever but you know it it was in a brutal spot and for you know for for a decent amount of money in a tournament um and i just looked at him and i said wow that that was so gross and he just looked at me like zero tilt in his you know, in his head, and he just said, "Yeah, that's that's just what we signed up for." Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Like, you just have to think about the big picture. Like, if you're not taking any beats, then there's just you know, you're just losing a lot of value somewhere. If you're playing well and and getting your cards in and getting the money in good, mm-hmm. uh, 
it's just not going to work out sometimes. And because of, because of poker, because of odds, that's just the way it has to be. And, you know, if you're not, if you're at a point where you're getting bluffed or you're taking a cooler and it's, you know, and it's setting you off, then uh, either your mentality is not where it should be, or you, maybe you're just playing way too big for your bankroll, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously in a tournament, that's really playing within your bankroll is really tough because you make such a small investment and when you're deep, you're just playing for money that you just can never play for in a cash game. Interesting. Um, can so you that, talk? You yeah. Know, it's definitely harder to deal with at that point. Can you talk about going forward? So what does, forget just playing in tournaments for a second. What are the business opportunities? Since we're, you know, we're at the Wharton School here, the number one business school <laughs> in the world. What what are the business opportunities that have presented themselves to you as a result of this? Like what's John Sin now, the business person? How are you able to monetize this? And then I want to get to playing poker in a second. How do you monetize this? in a in a way that gives you kind of a career now how has that changed the sponsorship money i think is not nearly as significant as it was uh 10 years ago when Mm. the online poker boom was going on uh but you still have some opportunities and and same thing with like if if someone wants an appearance you know compared to the money you just won it's not significant Mm -hmm. um but one of the interesting things I'm going through now is is that is exactly that question. You know, how do you take advantage of this opportunity? And you know, I'm fortunate enough to have some smart friends around me, to, and we have some ideas as to like how to uh, how to approach this. Um, and the reality is, you know, we could work on things for a month, and and nothing could come of it. But uh, definitely gonna try to build my brand and, and see what opportunities unfold beyond the standard, you know, uh, the standard poker deals that uh, that are being offered at the moment. Mm-hmm. Could you also explain, um, for a lot of our listeners who are on Wharton Moneyball, they don't understand that, um, for example, they think, well, Johnson just won $8.8 million. Well, let's first talk about taxes. We know that happens. But we also know, likely, you didn't have even 100% of your take. I don't know what percent of it you had. I'm not asking you to divulge that here on the air. But how would that happen going forward? Do you find people, like, um, like for example, one of the things that uh, I'm really upset of about was it was a recent tournament where someone you certainly know the name you've probably played against him Fedor Holtz was offering shares on Twitter you could buy into him his buy-in and he was only charging like an eight percent markup like I could have bought like eighteen thousand dollars for fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> worth of his share and Fedor I mean you can go find it just type Fedor Holtz buy-in on Twitter and you can see this so he was selling twenty percent of his buy-in to the general public, anybody that wanted to buy in. How do you um, think about that now going forward? Like, do you want investors, or how do you think about all of this just kind of personally and how that goes forward? You know, going forward, so there have been other opportunities that have unfolded where, uh, for example, I've been offered to play on Poker After Dark, which probably wouldn't have happened if I, unless I won the main. Um, you know, a few invites to tournaments or or bigger tournaments and you know i would imagine that's you know those those are the tournaments that fedor is selling uh, a piece of his 
uh, see. turn it for. Okay. I, I don't, and, and I don't really know why he's selling to the general public. Like, I don't know what his intentions are. You know, maybe it's to, you know, give back to his fan base or something because um, he clearly is somebody that he could have one person take all that extra action that he needed if he wants to. Right. Um, like, he has, he has no uh, monetary incentive to, to right. sell out to the general public. Um, that I know of, at least. So, uh, that, I mean, his spot and my spot are definitely uh, very different, especially since, you know, he's playing million-dollar buy-ins. And even with my score, you know, after taxes and whatnot, uh, and after the swaps and pieces that I had out, uh, I'm definitely not planning on – I'm not trying to play a million-dollar tournament anytime soon. So maybe one one last question for me. So – how do you now have to change your style, given that a lot of John hands are out there? And if you add on top of that, who doesn't want to beat the champ? So you could imagine people are going to be taking massive risks against you, whether it's in tournaments or cash games, uh, to say, I knocked, do you believe it? I knocked out John mm-hmm. Sin, 2018 main event champion. So how does that affect your play going forward? I've heard in the past main event champions saying, you know, that they just couldn't figure it out. Like, what is going on? Why can't I win? Like, how and how are people playing differently against me? Um, I'm actually really excited for that challenge. Like, I I think it's going to be a lot of fun to try and figure out, you know, how people are playing at me differently. Uh, it's been so busy that I've only been able to play like two or three small sessions of poker mm-hmm. uh, since the main event. Um, but I, I really can't wait to to go out there and, and play in a big field tournament again and see how things are changing. As I would imagine, like you said, you know, people want to beat the champs so that they're going to be calling off lighter and uh, gambling against me more. Which you know, a standard adjustment against play like that is. Just to play tighter, have less bluffs, uh, and, and just be more value heavy mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to my hands and betting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. I guess. Listen, John, we wish you the best with that. It does sound like a heck of a challenge and, and a lot of fun. It's it's cool to hear you say that you're looking forward to it. But we really appreciate you taking some time this morning to talk to us, especially calling in from from the West Coast. It's just terrific conversation. Yeah, no, this is great. You know, it's it's really cool to talk poker with like analytical and statistically minded people. So um, I appreciate you guys having me on. Absolutely. Wish you the best with all that comes next. All right. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.